Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Betrothal, an initial stage of marriage in which the couple was legally bound as husband and wife but lived separately and without sexual relationship. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant, and behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. 
And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This Mary, who understands in verses 31 to 33, that Gabriel has essentially quoted Isaiah 7. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. She sees the fulfillment of prophecy. She journeys to the hill country of Judah. We don't know precisely where, but it was several days' journey. She recognizes, verse 46, that she needs a Savior from her sin. And that, verse 48, from now on, this is a decisive moment in salvation history. She realizes that. And the decisiveness of it is pictured in the song we've just sung. Let's bow and give thanks. Our Lord, we praise You that in Christ alone our hope is found. There is no scheme of man. There is no scheme of hell that can stand against those whom You have held in Your hand and given life in Christ. We praise You that in Christ alone is our hope, our song, our joy, our forgiveness. And we with Mary have sung today of the glories of Your salvation. And I pray that we would understand her song a bit better here today and that we would identify with it even more deeply in the songs that we sing, in the way that our hearts bend toward You, and indeed as some come to baptism today to identify with this peasant woman and her rejoicing in the exaltation of the poor. We come before You as the poor. We come before You as the weak. We come before You as vulnerable and disenfranchised. There is a world that hates Your law, that despises the work of Christ. We sense the hostility. And yet, Lord, we rejoice that You have found us, that You have called us into Your flock, that we have responded with joy of heart that can come only from heaven above. And we now rejoice in Your presence. For those who know not this joy, bring them to Christ in time, in Your mercies. Open their eyes to see who Christ is and to desire Him and embrace Him as Savior, to sing with us someday. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our strength. He is our hope. And may we all embrace that by Your grace. Please again open the Word to our understanding together here today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Time does not permit a detailed consideration of this passage, nor even of Mary's song. I I hope 
to live someday and be able to go through this more carefully. But I'd like to just draw a few contextual observations about this passage and then to zero in uh, on one particular theme that links Mary's thinking here with that of her son, James, in the book that we've been working our way through as a church and have considered for several weeks now, I think there's some linkage that is there that we'd like to draw out in light of uh, this particular text and the coming of Christ and His birth. There is also linkage between what she says here and the baptism that we anticipate in a few moments here in this service. And I'd like to draw out some of those themes. But first of all, just contextually, in the light of Old Testament prophecies, Mary realizes that she is pregnant with Israel's Messiah. It's a heavy thought, an exhilarating thought, something very, very significant. This realization does not fill her with pride, but with humble praise to God. And yet being chosen as God's servant to bear the prophesied Messiah is a history-altering calling. And Mary realizes it. The world will never be the same again. And Mary will never be the same again. And she rejoices. The eternal significance of this moment explains in part the depth of content and the poetic beauty of Mary's song. Now critics line up. The critics of the Scriptures that say it cannot be inspired by God. It's a nice book, but it's not really His words. They line up here to say there is no way a Jewish peasant girl could write this kind of poetry. And to think that she just spoke this on this occasion, it's impossible to believe. Well, we have a little secret as a church, Eden Baptist Church. We just kind of take what the text says and we trust what the Lord says. And what does it say? And Mary said So we know that she said that. Now, saying that does not mean that this text was not edited afterwards. You might say something in a certain situation and write it down and work it over a little bit. You may have this even memorized in your mind and perhaps alter a phrase or two here or there depending on how it comes out. We're not saying that there was no editing upon what she said. And it doesn't mean that Mary invented every line. And this is where I want to ask the critics, have you read the rest of the Bible ever? What Mary's doing here is simply announcing the words of Scripture. This song is saturated in the Old Testament text. It just, it just pulsates with the phrases and the words of the Old Testament Scriptures. So a godly teenager living in a day where the Word of God was central to their very culture, the Word of God that she would have learned from infancy It's not hard at all to imagine that she might comprise such a song when you think of the significance of what's going on. In fact, there seems to be a very direct parallel with 1 Samuel chapter 2 and Hannah's prayer. Remember, she could not have children, but God moved and blessed her and gave her Samuel. And she responds with a song of praise, a prayer to God. Deep poetry based on the revelation of God. And Mary is just reflecting here Hannah's prayer in Mary's song. It's not difficult at all for us to understand how she could uh, construct such a poem eventually, perhaps again through editing, but through meditation. And there again, I think, is a key. 
Where was she? Nazareth, Galilee. She's walking to Judah. We don't know precisely the town, but in any event, this is not an hour's trip. This is a day's trip, however long it might have taken her. And Mary is not going along, listening to music on her smartphone and texting friends and watching movies on the, in the air-conditioned car ride to Judea and wondering about the condition of her flip-flops. She is walking this lengthy distance, putting ourselves in the culture, and, and, and we chuckle a bit because we know the culture of our day, how we travel. It's all on electronics, and it's keeping ourselves busy and, and distracted so often. But what's the culture of her day? Jewish caravans were moving quite consistently year after year through the land, passing to Jerusalem. And what did they do on the way? Not all of the time, but they did spend time meditating on Scripture, speaking out the words of Scripture. They sang songs that were saturated in the truth of God. Are we pressing too far to imagine that this is how Mary traveled? Singing songs of the new life, announcing the words of Scripture. And what would you do if you were to receive the Nobel Prize and you could only receive it as you walked several days to go get it? I would imagine you'd come up with a pretty good speech by the time you got there. So putting this all together, Mary's just thinking Scripture. She's realizing the significance of what is happening. She knows this is a history-altering moment. And God has chosen her. This is her song. And it's her song. Mary said. Mary said this teenage peasant girl saturated in the truth of god with care with precision with beauty and simplicity says this she announces this message and i can only draw attention to a few points in it verse 48 notice that she says he the lord has looked on the humble estate of his servant Mary describes what God has done in choosing her to bear Messiah. In these words, He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. The humble estate. She, it, she certainly has a humble heart. But she emphasizes here her estate. The Greek word speaks of one's station in life. Mary celebrates that she is not wealthy. She is not famous or powerful. She celebrates that. It can lead many to depression, to discouragement, to frustration. She rejoices. I'm not well known. I'm not important in this world's thinking. She's among the lowly people of the earth. Now, you remember James 1? James 1 in verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This is precisely what Mary is doing here. She is rejoicing that God loves to rescue and exalt the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. He has looked on me. The God we know who rejoices to do this has chosen me. An impoverished peasant girl. He's looked on me. What does that mean? How do you take that? It doesn't mean that he's just noticed her, that he's just simply viewed her. But he's looked on me in the sense that he has taken special notice of her. 
This is no small thing. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, the author of human history, has looked on this peasant girl from Nazareth with special favor. He, the Lord, has looked on me. The Greek word translated here, looked on, is found in James 2 and verse 3. We looked at it last week. If you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothes, remember that? If you pay attention to, what does that speak of? Of favoritism. Right? Remember as Paul spoke to us last week and and directed through that text the emphasis on favoritism. We're not to have favoritism. This is that same word looked at positively. God has favored me. He has looked upon me, not because I'm wealthy, not because I'm important, not because anyone has ever noticed me before. He's looked on me, in fact, in part because they never have. So she says in verse 48, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. She continues to contrast the wealthy and the poor, the proud and the humble in verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, He has sent away empty. Now you notice here the past tense phrases. It's very intriguing. Is this something God did in the past to show His might and His grace to Israel? Absolutely. And we could fill in a number of examples where God indeed worked this way in Israel's history. Where He lifted up the small nation, the people of God, and He cast aside powerful and wealthy empires. So certainly, He's thinking past tense in this way. Is it something God did in choosing Mary to bear Messiah? I think certainly is the case. And that's what she's drawing out here. He's brought down the mighty as he has exalted those of humble estate. That's me. So I think he's talking that way. She's talking that way as well. But if we connect her song back contextually to verses 31 through 33... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be what? He will be great. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house, over the dynasty of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end to it. So if Mary intentionally reflects Gabriel's message, then she speaks here in the past tense of the final future results of God's end time triumph. And I think it's possible for a young teenage girl to catch that connection because it's found in Old Testament prophecies. The prophecy is so sure, the coming day is so secure in God's plan as the author of history that you can speak of the results as past tense. I think the only way to really understand the fullness of her words in verses 51 to 53 is to realize that she is speaking in some sense of that which is yet to come, put in past tense. So we could say it this way, what God has done in choosing Mary, the microcosm, demonstrates what God has, that God has already triumphed over Messiah's enemies, the macrocosm. 
It's amazing. Messiah is still in Mary's womb, but his end time triumph is so certain she speaks of it in completed terms. He's already won. At any rate, we notice again the triumph of God is witnessed in the exaltation of the poor and the weak, in the humbling of the great and the powerful. You see that the proud are scattered in verse 51. The mighty are brought down in verse 52. The rich have been sent away in verse 53. While those of humble estate, God exalts and fills the hungry. Obviously, the gears of Christ's birth narrative in Luke 2 not only mesh with this emphasis, but they enhance it, don't they? The first song we sung today, its words were beautifully stated of this very point. It's the humility, the humble state of Christ's birth that is exalted in the Scriptures. And we, we make much of it. Jesus of Nazareth is prophesied in chapter 1, verse 33, to be the eternal ruler of David's dynasty. And yet Jesus is born in Bethlehem's stable or cave or some outside place separated from anything that a king would receive in that world. His parents are impoverished Jewish peasants. No one notices his birth other than shepherds. Humble people of humble estate. They live their life following after, leading, rescuing, and defending sheep. That's their job. They're the ones who welcome this Messiah. The humble, the poor, the weak. But we have to ask the question, why the poor? Why the poor? And here I think there are many wrong answers that are given. And many times Christian churches stop way too short of thinking through why the poor. Why does God love the poor, the weak, and the powerless? Is it simply because they are poor? Many would say it is. That's all there is to it. Why does God favor the poor? Why does He so care for those who suffer weakness and oppression? The answer is not because all of the poor love Him, right? I don't know if I've ever heard more pointed curses and rebellion against God than I've heard on the streets of an impoverished community in which I once lived. Not all the poor celebrate the greatness of God and love Him with all of their heart by any means. That's not why He loves the poor. Many poor people will be separated from Christ in eternity. And you could, if you know the Bible at all, devise a list of many wealthy people that will be in His presence. Abraham was an immensely wealthy individual and he's described as the father of faith, the man of faith. It's in his company that we find Lazarus in Luke 16. It's a wealthy man. Job, Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, Lydia, Barnabas, John. We can go on and on. There's many people that are wealthy that walk in the presence of the Lord and are received by Him. God has no innate aversion to success and wealth and power, does He? Verses 31 to 33. He will be great. He will rule the nations. They sing in Revelation, 
ascribe to Him all might and glory and riches. Nothing evil about wealth itself. But in the book of Luke, the poor are often physically poor. But they are also a form, they also form a sort of theological paradigm for God's people who know that they are spiritually poor as well. And they look to God for rescue. You notice in verse 50, it might have passed your attention, but in verse 50, and His mercy is for those who fear Him. This in the context of the poor and the downtrodden. They're described here as those who fear Him. So the poor in Luke's Gospel serve as pointers to the theme of spiritual poverty and humility that recognizes that God alone is God and that we desperately need Him. The poor cannot rely on their riches. The weak cannot rely on their strength. The disenfranchised cannot rely on their political power and social connections. And so, it is often the case that the poor in this world more readily see that they are poor in spirit. That they are spiritually bankrupt people before God and they need His saving grace. As in verse 50, Luke subtly links the poor and the righteous remnant in Israel who look for salvation from the Lord. We see this throughout the book of Luke. Luke 4 verse 18 as Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We have to think a bit more deeply than simply He's looking for people that don't have extra change or somewhere to live. And that He loves them because they suffer. He does. But as we look at the depths of it, it goes far further to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's He saying there? It seems to be an echo of that year of Jubilee where those who were under the crushing weight of debt And they were released. Now the whole system was ordered that way and everybody knew that year of Jubilee was coming. But the point of it is, I think the the echo here is of this liberation. In financial terms, their impoverishment was lifted. The indebtedness was lifted. There was a new day. Jesus came to provide a spiritual liberation from sin and emptiness. And so he says in Luke 6 and verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke does not record Jesus as saying, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, as we find elsewhere. The reason may be that for Luke, the term poor is a reference to the righteous poor, to those who are despised by this world because they fear God and thus often do not have access to the riches and the power of this world. So there's a physical element to it. There is a compassion for the weak and the vulnerable and the poor. But it's not a period there. As if we simply relieve the poverty and all is done. It is a reflection of a deeper reality that this world is filled with spiritually poor people. Some who see it and some who do not. 
And it is precisely because of physical wealth that so many people do not see it. Remember what Jesus said. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So God's choice of Mary and the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth are not merely a heartwarming rags-to-riches story. I hope to help a few people here today. Just, just a few. I think most of us perhaps get this. But a few, you've got to catch this. The humble circumstances of Jesus' birth is not merely a rags-to-riches, wonderful, heartwarming story. It certainly can be that, but that stops far too short. The theme of the exalted poor that Luke sounds throughout this book is meant to press us to ask the question, what? Or to say, are we to say in response to that, well, I'm glad I'm not poor. God's given me abundance of riches in this land. I might not be in comparison to some people around me, but I, I certainly have great wealth and I'm... I'm really glad I'm not poor like Joseph and Mary. Of course that's not what he's looking for, is it? We know that. What is he looking for? He wants us to ask this question, do I realize my spiritual bankruptcy? The emptiness of my soul, the utter frailty and inability to save myself. Do I respond to that with pride to say to God, I'll take care of it on my own. I'll do it my way. Or do I identify with the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, even spiritually, as the physical is a representation of this spiritual reality where I come before God and say, I bring nothing to the table. I come empty. I come miserable. I come in humble estate by suffering for me the death that I deserve, by dying in my place, Jesus, you provide for me in my weakness a rescue from the ultimate spiritual poverty of sin and judgment. This is where Luke is bending us. This is where I think he's pointing us. By rising from the dead, Jesus provides sinners the gift of eternal life. It's in that death, it's in that resurrection that we come in our spiritual poverty to find rescue and liberation. We find individually that the year of the Lord comes. The liberation comes in our spiritual poverty when we trust in the death and the resurrection of Christ. Do we recognize that baptism is a symbol of all of this? It is a symbol of dying with Christ in a state of abject spiritual poverty. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. In utter spiritual poverty... We don't come and stand on our merits. And the candidates who now come to identify with Jesus in the waters of baptism today take their place with Mary. And they certainly, even in a far more significant sense, take their place with Jesus and all those whose hope is not in this world's power, sources, and wealth. Jesus did not come in in a limo walking a red carpet to the celebration of the power brokers of this world. He came in humbly. He came in renouncing pride. 
And he identified with those who publicly admit that they are spiritually empty without God's salvation. Remember the beautiful words of Paul, how encouraging they are. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. There were some, but not many. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But that we would boast in the Lord. And there are people throughout this world, they think they're big shots. They've got money. They've got wealth. They've got fame. They've got power. And they want everybody to know it. Or they celebrate it within their own hearts. They're the power brokers of this world. What Luke is telling us, what the Scriptures teach us from beginning to end, is there are no power brokers. Just people who think they are. When we think of those poor in spirit who come to God, that's what we must all do. And the wealthy individuals we talked about earlier who will be in the presence of God, you can look in the life of each one of them and show evidences that they come before the Lord absolutely bankrupt in spirit. Poor in spirit, needing the salvation of God and recognizing that. This is exactly what we find Mary doing in Luke 1. In humility, she boasts in the Lord. As Paul said it, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, but to boast in the Lord. Here she boasts in the Lord alone. And this is what our baptismal candidates come to do as a testimony before us today. They humble themselves by proclaiming in word, what? Not their own merits and achievements. You'll notice in the words that they speak to us in a few moments, it's not what it's going to be about. Here's who I am. Here's the wonder of my being. Here's what I've accomplished to impress God. It will not be that. But they will boast in what Christ has done to rescue them from themselves. To rescue them from their sin and from the judgment that they deserve They humble themselves by submitting to full submersion in water. That's a humbling thing. Right? Met some individuals who didn't want to do that because their hair get wet in front of people. I get that. Well, I don't, but (laughs) I don't don't have enough to get that. But um, I understand. It's humbling. You get up here and you get drenched in front of other people. It's humbling. But what it is, is an identification with Christ. It's saying, I come with nothing to show. I don't come up here showing you my wallet. I don't come up here showing you my toys. I don't come up here with a list of accomplishments to impress you as a church. I come in the waters of baptism with nothing but Christ. 
I come with Him. I come in His merits. I boast in Him. In utter humility of spirit, they rise from the water to announce that they no longer live for themselves, but in the power of Him who loved them and gave Himself for them. If you find yourself here this morning with pride in your heart, with a stubbornness that is there to resist the call of God and to think that in any net level you need Him, let it go. See that He calls you in poverty of spirit to come before Him in dependent faith. And learn the joy of life, of boasting in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, the humbling event that is now to follow, the estate of humiliation in which we all come before You, we acknowledge as a church is a state of great joy. We thank You for the way that Mary rejoiced in the triumph of Christ, not in the triumph of her strength and power, but in the triumph of the Lord of heaven. We praise You, our Father, that You have given us the Son. We praise You, Christ, for Your victory and redemption. Spirit of God, I pray that in this moment that You would lift Christ high. and That we would recognize the utter, sheer grace of His salvation. To sinners who deserve nothing but your judgment, we come with nothing in our hands. But in those empty hands, in the metaphorical nakedness of baptism, we reach up our empty hands and we cling to you. Thanking you that you hold us, that you sustain us, and that you are the author of salvation to those who come in utter need. We do that now. Bless those who come to this place of baptism. Give courage to them and strength to them as they testify of their walk with Christ, of their identification with Him in the abject poverty of death. Stripped of all that makes us important in death, we come to recognize that it is the death of Christ that is our death. And as they give witness to that, I pray that you would bring joy and gladness to each one and to our church this day as we celebrate the salvation of our Savior Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.